Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Anna Ruddock, the author of the brand new book, Special Treatment, Student Doctors at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences, which is published by Stanford University Press in July 2021. So it's like fresh hot off the press. Um, welcome, Anna, to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here in conversation with me today. Hi, Sneha. It's a real pleasure to be here. Lovely to be to be chatting with you. And thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the book. Like I was just telling you, it's such an empathetic and incisive portrayal of life at Ames, one of these institutions that I've grown up hearing about, but I never really knew what was going on, you know, behind the walls. So it's great to have this book. Um, it's such a, such a you know, brilliant instantiation of the power of ethnography as well. Um, and on that note, I thought maybe we could start out with you telling us a little bit about how you became an anthropologist. Yeah, sure. Um, tricky to know how far back to go in a way. Um, right. <laughs> you, could, you could say in some ways, always have been in that I've always enjoyed, I've always loved watching people um, right. and listening and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. But in a more kind of disciplinary sense, um, I I actually left uh, school a little earlier than most people um, because I I was sick as a as a teenager and continue to be. I live with a chronic illness, and that started when I was an adolescent. So I actually went to university as a as a mature student, as we call it here in the UK, in my um, early mid twenties. Um, mm-hmm. And I had two attempts at that. Um, the first one didn't work out so well. But the second attempt, I went to Sussex, University of Sussex here in the UK, and I did a degree. Well, the degree I began was in anthropology and development studies. Um, mm-hmm. And most people who I studied with on that joint degree ended up dropping anthropology. And I was one, possibly the only person, I think, who dropped development in favour of doing single major anthropology um, mm-hmm. because I, I really loved it and I spent the second year of that degree I was really fortunate on um, I spent the second year of my undergraduate degree um, at Berkeley at UC Berkeley um, where I really fell in love with medical anthropology in particular um, right. and I was really fortunate I had classes with Nancy Shepard Hughes and with Lawrence Cohen and then back mm-hmm. at Sussex I worked with Maya Anithan so I had this kind of South Asia and Medanthro thread from pretty early on in my studies. Um, my master's was more interdisciplinary social science with a focus on contemporary India. Um, and then I went back to anthropology for my, for my PhD. Um, mm-hmm. And I still, I still love medical anthropology. It still gets me excited, even though I'm not I'm not an academic anthropologist. I don't work in academia anymore, but it's um, my heart is still in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that clearly shows also through the book. Um, and you know, 
the book succinctly put is an anthropological study of uh, the All India Institute of Medical Sciences aims in New Delhi as a provider of undergraduate medical education. So could you tell us a little bit about how this book was conceived or how did this project unfold? Yeah, sure. So the book is a, an extension of my PhD. Um, and I, I was working after my master's, I actually went to work at the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as was. Um, and I was working there as an India research analyst, which was fantastic as an experience. Um, it was also I was also quite disillusioned um, with with the focus of, of the work, which obviously tends to be on trade and the trade relationship between the UK and India and aspects of India that are important to the UK, but not necessarily particularly close to my heart. And I knew that I wanted to do a PhD at some point. Um, and around that time, I thought, you know, this is probably the moment, this is the opportunity to go and spend some time working on something that I, I really do care about. Um, so I went to the India Institute at King's College London, um, and I had a very broad focus in mind, which was around health and citizenship, um, illness and medicine in India. Um, and as I began to develop that idea, I was I was looking for a for a hook, so to speak, for these big themes, and I knew that I didn't want to do another community-based study um, of treatment-seeking, healthcare-seeking, illness experience. There are so many excellent examples of, of those types of studies. Um, and I was more interested in power and elites and the role of the medical establishment in how in informing patient experiences. And I remember having a discussion with someone and talking about all this and, and they said, um, they mentioned AIMS and, I, and I'd obviously spent time in Delhi and like anyone who spent time in Delhi, you know, you know what AIMS right. is. As you say, you don't know necessarily what goes on beyond the gates, but you know where it right. is and you see it on the road signs and it's, it's there. And so that quickly, once that was in my mind, it, it just took on a life of its own, really. It seemed like such a such an opportunity as, a, as an institution to study because Ames is famous and really embedded in the public imagination, but it's, it's barely studied by, by social scientists. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting. Um, yeah. There's a study by T.N. Madden from the 70s, early 80s of, of doctors at Ames. And there are people who mention Ames and, you know, they might go and talk to someone in a particular department but there's no substantial study of or interrogation of AIMS as an institution. Um, and I think the, one of the other motivations for it was I really like, um, I was at the time I was really enjoying work by Didier Fassin on public ethnographies. And he mm-hmm. has that wonderful quote about the power of, of ethnography um, and how we can come across these places that are that anthropology has a role to play in what he calls these ethnographic black holes, as well as sites that are saturated with meaning. So, you know, he says we can use ethnography to illuminate, illuminate the unknown, and also to interrogate the obvious. And, and Ames represents both of those conditions, really. It's lots of people have things to say about it, but not many people have really scrutinised it in any 
in any detail. Um, so that's kind of how the institution came to be my main focus. Um, and actually, it took, I think, one of the one of the, I suppose, luxuries in a way of doing a PhD in, in anthropology or a kind of ethnographic sociology is that we are at least allowed the time for things mm-hmm. to unfold, aren't we, as we as we undergo and we begin our studies in the way that perhaps later on, you know, it's not so easy. Um, and so I actually, my ideas initially were still quite broad. I was interested in biological citizenship. I was interested in patients seeking treatment from the state at this, you know, preeminent institution. Um, and I came to it, I think, as a lot of us do with a with a social justice lens and wanting, you know, to have a kind of patient centred orientation. But actually, the, what, once I was at Ames, I became more and more interested in the in the educational side of things and this formidable reputation that Ames has for being, you know, the best in in quotes um, for medical education, and I and I wanted to know like, what what does that mean? Um, what what does it mean to be the best, the best medical college? Um, and that's what led me to students, um, and then particularly to MBBS students, given their their youth and their you know their position at, at the real beginning of of what may become a medical career. Um, so that's kind of how that unfolded, and it. It didn't, um, there was some discomfort, like I did feel some discomfort initially in the kind of decentering of patients um, and not having patients at the heart of the book or at the heart of the project at that point. Um, but it felt important to me to, to interrogate really how medical power and prestige are cultivated in order to understand, you know, how that plays out in in consultation with patients. And we can only really understand that if we also look at at education. Um, And there were some practical considerations too, in that I wanted my research to be physically situated within Ames. um, And the nature of the institution, that it's so busy, it's so crowded, it's quite a stressful environment, particularly for patients who are, you know, already sick. Um, and it's very difficult to to meaningfully engage with patients in that context. Um, and also, I think I, I like the idea of doing something different, honestly, I wanted to do something that hadn't been done before. Um, and so I thought, let me focus on this institution, and let me focus on students um but i think it also inevitably by choosing to stay very focused on this particular institution i made i made things more difficult for myself at the outset when it, in terms of getting permission to conduct the research and getting access um and i think yeah. it's very understandable why we don't see that many studies of big institutions because it's really hard to mm-hmm. get in the door Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, on that note, could you tell us a little bit about the kinds of methods you used to do the study? And you'd mentioned um, having a chronic illness. So how did that shape your uh, fieldwork? Yeah, sure. So the in terms of methods, it's I I did use ethnographic methods. I spent time in clinics and on wards, um, shadowing certain certain doctors and observing interactions. Um, 
I I conducted a lot of a lot of interviews. Um, it is quite an interview heavy study, I would say. Um, and I spent a lot of time, you know, hanging out at the coffee shop and chatting with students and going on the bus with them to the rural um, field site and the the rural health services centre where they spend some time. Um, I also did some some textual and discourse analysis um, around that whole point about how Ames is embedded in imaginations and the role of the media in that and how that gets promoted and how that then shapes students' perceptions of, of the institution and, and of themselves. Um, so, yeah, a few, a few different methods that I think we can put under the broad heading of anthropological. Um, and yes, in terms of doing field work while ill, um, I, I talk about this in the book a little bit. I have a, a methods appendix in the book, and it was important to me to put this in um, because in my experience, while anthropology has, you know, we all know since the 1980s, anthropology has become much more um, reflexive, much more self-aware, much more in, interrogating of one's own position in the field and how that may influence things. Despite that, I had not seen um, or was not exposed to anything at all, really, about what it means to be an anthropologist and to conduct fieldwork if you do not fit that mould of this kind of heroic normative body that can endure and keep on pushing and do more and spend more time. And, you know, really, there, there is a narrative sometimes implicit, sometimes more overt, but there is this sense of, you know, you're kind of supposed to come back exhausted. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, if you have any kind of condition that means that exhaustion is clinically dangerous for you, Mm -hmm. then then Mm -hmm. that's not possible. Um, And so, yes, it was important for me to to say that there there were ways in which... um, I, I I work I always work within my my limitations. So I didn't spend, for example, as much time socialising in the evening with students as I might have done. Um, I didn't. I had to cancel, you know, some interviews because I wasn't well. I I didn't necessarily go to lots of early morning meetings I was invited to because I I can't. Um, so and yet I did, you know, I did the work, and and also I had a wonderful research assistant called Preeti. Um, and again, I think there's, at least in my time doing the PhD, there was this sense that you know you really were supposed to that, that there are rites of passage, you know, and if you do not work yourself into the ground transcribing your interviews, then somehow you're cheating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas yeah. actually, I needed another human to help me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and she did, and and we got there, and I, I'm very uh, very grateful to her, and and yeah, I just I hope that you know the more of us at least mention these things mm-hmm. when we're talking about the work we've done, then um, yeah. the the more open we can be about you know we do our best, don't we, within our circumstances, and also our circumstances Absolutely. influence how we see things and how we and how we write. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad that you brought that up and that you wrote that in the book. I found that really, really compelling. Um, you know, this there has been some amount of conversation, I think, about gender and the field and how right. uh, vulnerability is experienced even by the uh, by the ethnographer, not just the interlocutors, and what can we do to protect the ethnographer. But there isn't as much of a conversation around um, health and even like mental health and field work, right? And uh, there is this uh, vacuum that definitely we we need more conversations i was particularly thrilled to read that um and like you said i haven't read too much of it i know that there's a new initiative patchwork ethnography that's doing some of this which is great and uh, you know more the media voices in this um <laughs> in writing against this cowboy heroic ethnography right. which is obviously centered on this <laughs> male <laughs> you yeah, know um, able-bodied <laughs> yeah able-minded figure and uh, yeah i know um well yeah thanks for being so um, open to talking about uh, no, this absolutely. as well on the show. I'm uh, very grateful. So uh, before we go on to the ethnographic material that you've uh, so meticulously collected, I have to mention that I really enjoyed your historical contextualization of AIMS. For listeners unfamiliar with the historical importance of AIMS, could you give us a short glimpse into the nationalist excitement and the post-colonial anxieties around its establishment? Yes, absolutely. And, and thank you for for saying that you enjoyed it. I'm, I'm really glad to hear it because the chapter <laughs> nearly didn't make it. It, um, ah. it, was, it was in and then it was out and then it was back in. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm really glad it, it made it back in. I think at one point yeah. the, the editor felt, with, with good reason perhaps, that mm. it kind of, it almost, it, it slows us down in terms of getting to the real heart of the matter and the story of these students. And, and that's, that's true. But, um, but I did agree with, with one of the reviewers who said, you know, for particularly for people who are new to um, either to this discipline or to particularly to, to South Asia work, um, we need, we need more, we need an introduction. Um, Absolutely, and yeah. also I think for anyone who knows anything about Ames, it's so the nature of its, its establishment and the legacy of that is so present still that um, it was it was important to to include that. So, so yes, I mean relatively briefly the the point about about Ames is that it was conceived um, during the the kind of final years of the British colonial regime in India. But it was brought to fruition in those early years of Indian independence. So it really is a post-colonial institution in them, um, not just in a, you know, chronological sense, but in the much more rich conceptual sense in that it carries within it um, all these histories and these tensions around forms of knowledge and who owns knowledge um, and it embodies this moment of science being positioned as as this development solution really for these newly independent states um, particularly in India um, and as a signal of prestige within the international community um, being wanting to be seen to conduct a particular type of science in a to a particular type of standard that that is deemed um, the best, really, and and that that theme continues. And and Ames was it was established to be the best 
it was established as an elite institution by elites. Um, and because of that, it has this from the outset, um, and it was established through an act of parliament. It was really driven through by India's first health minister. Um, it was a very interesting woman, um, Indian royalty called Rajkumari Amrit Kaur. Um, and it has this very ambitious mandate. Um, it was modelled in part on Johns Hopkins in the US, and there were several delegations, both in the waning years of, of the British colonial regime and in early independent India, where scientists and doctors were sent around the world to really do intelligence gathering about what's going on in medical education and medical science and research elsewhere and what can we bring back and also in some cases who can we bring back to to put together this this institution um, and it was tasked with becoming India's premier medical institution and it was intended to combine the finest research and medical facilities with the highest quality training of of new generations of Indian doctors um, it, and it really was intended to set a new standard. It was, it was also intended to apply social medicine to the myriad health challenges of this newly independent nation. And, and many of those challenges were, and as we know, continue to be entangled with poverty and social exclusion. And so we see right from the outset that the complexity of this mission ensured that Ames was immediately kind of implicated, tangled in these tensions between this kind of techno-scientific emphasis of development and the wider social determinants of health. It had to manage the, the consequences of a very lacklustre, arguably neglectful policy approach to public health care beyond urban hospitals. Um, and it also had to manage this conflict inherent in tasking a consciously elite institution with playing a part in remedying inequality. Um, and these, these are the complexities and the excitements and the complexities and the tensions that, that endure and are, and are very much made, made visible through, through the experiences of, of contemporary MBBS students. Um, and also in the image of the doctor that, Ames encourages students to become. Um, so yes, we, we, we see that all still still playing out and particularly the consequences of Ames never having been supported by infrastructure, either grassroots primary or secondary care infrastructure. So Ames compensated for the lack of that right from the beginning. That's not a new phenomenon. It's just that the numbers have grown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really um, interesting. Thanks for uh, summing that up so beautifully. Um, so I really loved reading chapter three titled Getting In. And as someone who grew up in the milieu of watching all of her friends and family attend coaching, it was all too familiar to me. <laughs> so uh, I would love it if you could give our listeners a sense of what the All India pre-medical test me meant to your interlocutors and how they understood uh, concepts like merit, excellence, and exceptionalism vis-a-vis -vis these competitive exams? Um, and how did 
the competitiveness of the process of getting into aims shape their self-understandings as to be doctors? Yeah. Um, so I was, I was very interested, as I said, in the, in the position of aims in the, in the public imagination um, and, and particularly, you know, in the imagination of, of these aspiring medical students and the, the view of or the understanding of aims as exceptional is very much sustained by, driven and sustained by the competitiveness of, of the entrance exam. And we're talking about an acceptance rate of less than 0.01%. It's one of those figures that I think no matter, for those of us who grew up in much countries with much smaller populations, it's it's a shocking stat for anyone, but I think it's particularly mind-boggling <laughs> for people who just have never had to encounter competition on that scale. Um, and for that to be, it, it's so normalised, it's a given that it is that competitive. And so, of course, that drives a sense that AIMS is this, you know, magical place where this this tiny number of extraordinary <laughs> superhumans <laughs> get accepted into, um, and it's it's really interesting talking to students because you know some of them would say, "I got here and I just thought everybody was going to be, you know, just so clever." The just extraordinary and also so focused and so hardworking and um, and that's not actually the case. They often they often find um, yes. So so the the exam itself and I should say so the All India Pre Medical Test at the time of my research was for all the state medical colleges, but Ames has always had its own entrance exam. And things have changed a bit in in recent years, um, but Ames continues to have its own entrance exam. So there's also that, um, and mm. it's similar in that sense to the IITs, the Indian Institutes of Technology, in that these exams are known. They have a reputation for being slightly more challenging because they have this logic reasoning dimension to the exam. That said, they are still multiple choice exams based around three subjects, essentially, um, physics, biology and chemistry. Um, and on the basis of how many questions you get right, your, your future is determined. Um, and at no point are students, aspiring doctors or aspiring AIM students asked why they want to be doctors. Um, which I think is fascinating in, in and of itself in terms of what, what are these institutions looking for in terms of the students they accept um, and how much effort really goes in to thinking about who do we want these students to be and, and what are they coming here to learn. Um, but yes, in terms of how, how the exam shapes students' kind of perceptions, um, I would say students, they're not, um, you know, these students, these are bright kids, basically. They're not, they're not uncritical of this, of this process. And some of them expressed real um, discombobulation 
at, at having got in. You know, one of them one of them said to me, I, I I would I would ask them like, how does it feel to be to be one of this handful of people among hundreds of thousands? Um, and and you know, they would say, I, I do sometimes. I wonder how why me? How did I? do it because it is so much about luck that you know there are thousands and thousands of students who get virtually the same results in the exam um and it's it's a very um oh what's the word i'm looking for it feels quite arbitrary i think to to some of these students um and we can go on to talk about how that links with merit and affirmative action um but just to to finish on the on the nature of the exam itself, yes, they were they were aware of this, and and several of them were were quite scathing about the nature of the entrance exam um, and how you know it doesn't ask anything about a person's motivation to study medicine. Not that that's an easy thing to ask in an exam for hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and one one person, Anjali, in the book said to me, you know, it doesn't. The entrance exam doesn't test how smart you are; it tests how hard you can work. Basically, how long can you spend mugging up? How long can you spend revising? Um, and then, you know, churning out these these answers. Um, so, arguably, I think the exam it shapes that perception from the outside. And then the students who go through it and find themselves on the inside um, are perhaps a little more um, a little more aware, a little more, I don't want to say cynical, but, you know, can view it through a slightly more critical lens, having been through the experience. Um, and, you know, in that vein, in, uh, in the next chapter, you discuss the circulation of the discourse of freedom on campus and the imaginations and aspirations that it engenders, right? So uh, more specifically, you discuss uh, what you call the simultaneous centrality and obfuscation of affirmative action on campus. So could you tell us a little bit about how caste manifests on campus, particularly how people from marginalized communities negotiate a space like Ames? Yes, and I think at this point it's worth saying that one of the choices, in some ways one of the challenges of doing this study of an institution that hadn't really been studied before is that you are overwhelmed with potential angles. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not as though, you know, s- several books existed on a particular dimension of life at Ames. And so I could say, well, either I build on that or perhaps I could take another another angle. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I, what I ended up doing was, I, I, well, one could argue that I have opted for breadth over depth. So mm-hmm. what I have, the, the book has a chronological structure and we follow, broadly speaking, we follow students kind of through their AIMS MBBS experience. And each chapter has a different theme. And had I wanted to, um, and perhaps had more time, any of those chapters could have been the book. Um, but the choice I made was to make this attempt at a first kind of look at the institution, at medical education from a variety of through a variety of different lenses in in one book. And things are lost and things are gained through that through that choice. Um, and that's just to say 
when we're talking about caste, of course, caste could be, you know, it is worthy of, of many books about how caste manifests at Ames. Um, and in terms of what, what I wrote about it, um, what I became interested in was how caste manifests particularly through through discourse and language around rank, around affirmative action, around merit. Um, so I focus more on that and this I, I center it, as you say, on this this concept of freedom where students talked about feeling so free. And actually as you begin to, you know, interrogate that, <clears throat> there's a there's a much darker aspect to that notion of freedom depending on who you speak to um and Ames itself Ames has a, a pretty dark history when it comes to caste discrimination um so in 2006 when the reservate the 50 percent the additional reservation was brought in for people from other backward classes at public institutions of education um, so that meant that 50% of seats were reserved for students from OBC communities, scheduled caste communities, SC, and scheduled tribe communities, ST. And they have different proportions, and that remains the case. And in 2006, um, as you know, and I'm sure as most people listening to this know, but just in case, there was a, a huge reaction to this, huge protest lots of agitation in in um, in objection to this additional reservation for OBC communities. Um, and there was a hunger strike. Ames was Ames was at the heart of this protest movement um, around medical education and medical colleges in particular. Um, and there was a hunger strike at Ames. Um, there was a lot of it was the time where there was a lot of overt bullying in hostels. There was pressure put on students and faculty to respect the strike. Um, faculty refused to teach students who asked to be taught. Um, and that's all in this report called the Thorat Report, which has lots of detail about what went on at Ames at this time. And it's, it's not that long ago at all. Um, and yet it does seem that caste express caste discrimination is less it's less overt it's less overtly violent i would say these days it's a bit more spectral among students that is um but it is inevitably present um and it's most tragically illuminated by the you know the continuing periodic suicides of young students um mm -hmm. and this really tragic irony that you have these young medical students committing suicide in the shadow of this famous public hospital mm -hmm. it's it's so poignant um so it's very much still present um though perhaps experienced in different ways and it's also worth saying that at least in my time at Ames um discrimination within and toward faculty appeared to be more overt there was a general consensus that that was more overt than it was among students at that point um 
And one of the themes that comes up quite regularly in the book is that Ames is Ames is deemed exceptional in contrast with other institutions. So there's lots of reference, you know, students saying it's better here than it is there or there or there. Um, and what I became really interested in was this tension between times when, you know, hearing students who were from marginalised communities whose seats at Ames were part of a reserved group um, and when they would say you know caste doesn't really matter here and then we'd go on to a conversation or something else would come up and it would be very apparent that caste does matter here actually um, it's just that it may not be as bad quote-unquote as in a college you know in a state in a different state for example that mm-hmm. doesn't have anything like the um, reputation or the profile of, of Ames. Um, so one of the the really obvious ways in which it, it manifests is through this concept of merit. And again, this I'm sure this won't be new to anybody listening to a South Asia <laughs> books podcast. Um, and I, I build on, you know, this is this is nothing new really. I what I do in the book is I build on work by Satish Deshpande, um, who's written mm-hmm. a lot about rank and merit in entrance exams, and also the work by Ajanta Subramanian, who's written an excellent book about how caste and merit intertwine at IIT Madras. Um, and so I use their work to to add, you know, kind of um, to substantiate it through examples from from Ames, and also making the point that there are times when the use of merit as a caste weapon is distinct when it has a medical when it's linked to medicine and medical colleges because it gets weaponized in a sense of being a a defense of this kind of the moral um the moral content of being a doctor and so there's one conversation in the book with a student who makes the case that um it's not that he is against affirmative action but that you know for the good of future patients people unless they are quote meritorious and got the same grades they shouldn't be there because they are a danger to to the lives of of patients which is a very powerful um use of of merit as a as a weapon by you know on an upper caste narrative um mm-hmm. so merit yeah merit equates with upper casteness and we see this the same way that you know caste is ascribed to students who are in reserved categories because the general category mm-hmm. are the so-called you know they they can consider themselves casteless post caste mm-hmm. it's it's very similar to you know when white people say i don't see color or i am post racial right. It's a, right. what a nice position to be in. Right. Um, meanwhile, who is it that, you know, maintains this consciousness? So, so yes, and I, in there I have, a, I have a section where I look at the exam, entrance exam results from one year, which are calculated to seven decimal places, and tiebreakers are used to differentiate between the same score 
And you do have to go through thousands of results before you see any real divergence between applicants, whether they're applying through affirmative action or not. Um, and as Deshpande puts it, you know, rank, it's, it's a tool to create heterogeneity where there is homogeneity, essentially. Um, and it's used to justify a perception of capability difference um, and merit therefore becomes equate, equates with being in the general category, which means being upper caste. Um, and actually what gets revealed when you look at these you know, mind-boggling scores of thousands of students is, is the fact that these institutions can't absorb the demand. There is, there is so much demand and there is not enough capacity to absorb it and that's what fuels this casteism and this resentment, which obviously serves certain agendas very well and disguises in the process the, the infrastructural and the, and the policy shortcomings. Um, and just finally, on, on, the, on the caste point, what, what also happens is that rank is used to justify a perception of a, of a capability difference, but often actually what might show up is a is a difference in things that the exam does not test for um and often it's about english often it's that you know a student who may be from a marginalized community who got almost the same result in the entrance exam may then find being at aims more challenging because they haven't had the same quality of schooling and they may not be as comfortable with English as their classmates and Ames offers very little institutional support which is when we see this idea of freedom really being called into question because freedom for some students is all very well and for others what it suggests is that you need to have this very high degree of self-direction and an ability to navigate these institutions in order to extract the greatest benefit from the MBBS. And not every student arrives equipped with those resources. Um, you know, for, for those who, whose childhoods or whose schooling hasn't afforded them those privileges, then this freedom has a, uh, has a much darker, darker side that, that can have tragic outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for that. Uh, so uh, chapter five, I thought was super interesting too, and it shed light on something rather under discussed around issues of healthcare in India. And in this chapter, you discuss what you term patient labor and uh, show this deep irony at play at AIMS, right? And you say that the value of an AIMS MBBS is produced in part by patients who do not have access to the type of healthcare environment in which an Amazonian is ultimately expected to practice. Can you elaborate on this irony a little bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so Ames patients, in the eyes of certainly the students I was working with, are mm -hmm. they're understood in two ways, and I'll go on to talk about the second way, but one way in which they're understood is as an educational asset, um, given their numbers and the clinical diversity. People come to Ames with all kinds of different conditions and there are an average of 10,000 patients passing through 
the outpatient department every day. So, so the value and, and students would talk about, um, about the value of this and about this being partly what sets AIMS apart. Um, and one of the, one of the many advantages of being at AIMS is that you have all these patients, which, who sometimes get dehumanized and referred to, you know, as clinical material, essentially. Um, so that's where I, I make this point that you've, that you've just said about the value of the AIMS MBBS being produced at least part by patients. But then the second part of that, yes, is that they are, it is produced by these patients who don't have access to the kind of healthcare environment that AIMSonians or AIMS graduates are conditioned to practice in. So you have patients coming to AIMS quite often from long distances from elsewhere in North India, often because they cannot access affordable, good quality healthcare nearer to home, or because the person they've been seeing runs out of steam or isn't sure what to do and will just say, go to AIMS. Um, And so AIMS students are exposed to this and they're well aware of this dynamic and that this is what's going on. But what is encouraged is this drive towards super specialization, towards urban practice, towards highly mm. technolo- technological practice, um, which will very often by default be, be private. Um, right. And in those environments, you don't see these patients. And yet it is these patients that these students have learned through on their journey to these elite environments. So that's that's what I mean. Um, so patient labour, as I put it, it in, it informs this the exceptionalism of medical education at Ames, but it does have this inherent irony. And what we mm. what I look at is is the role of Ames in in the devaluation of general medicine, essentially, mm. and the devaluation of the types of practice that. India desperately needs more of. Um, and I have this, this very powerful quote from a former director who said to me, Ames killed the GP. Um, and yet that's what so many people end up at Ames for want of, for want of an affordable, capable general practitioner. Um, and, and faculty at Ames are, are aware of this too. Um, you know, people would, someone said to me, we really need good role models. And one particular faculty member was really despairing that the institution, in their view, placed more value on passing the entrance exam to go to the US for postgraduate study than mm. encouraging any kind of aspiration to work in general or family or community medicine, despite the community right. medicine module. Um, so then the question becomes, who should be responsible for establishing those models? Who should be those role models um, when who consider, you know, a gifted general practitioner to be as emblematic of excellence as a super mm-hmm. specialist surgeon? Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, you also talk about this thing that you call the hidden curriculum that structures patient-doctor interactions 
and matters to the mo- modes of producing medical knowledge at aims so why is it important to pay attention to this hidden curriculum and what does it tell us yeah so at the same time that patients are considered an educational asset the overwhelming number of patients and the fact that they are overwhelmingly marginalized socioeconomically um in different ways that fact is used often to excuse poor communication in the clinic um and a lack of attention to power relations between doctors and patients um and so in an example of of this hidden curriculum point at the time of my research there was nothing in the mbbs curriculum about communication or the analysis of power mm. relations in the clinic and as i've mentioned the mbbs the admissions process is based on multiple choice questions about biology chemistry and physics um that in itself builds on a school system that segregates sciences and arts as incompatible the entrance exam therefore has no social science or humanities component and no expectation that students will have thought about the human interaction at the heart of medicine um and no mm-hmm. opportunity for students to articulate their motivation for becoming a doctor and by extension the study of human t- interaction in the clinic and the social life of medicine it reflects that's not part of the curriculum so students are really not given the opportunity to reflect on the doctor role on being a social actor you know with with their own values and interests who are imbued with enormous power over mm-hmm. these very very many human beings who who seek seek their help and it aims that fundamental power differential that we see in any clinic anywhere on the planet is made all the more striking by this gulf between the everyday reality of middle class clinicians um at an elite institution and the poverty and the marginalization of many of their patients so mm. other than this cursory glance during the community medicine module the structures that maintain and reproduce social inequality and its impact on health they are paid very little attention during the education of these students who are being told that they're the country's most promising young doctors and so given this absence the students learn about interaction with patients either through implicit example or overt instruction by individual faculty members and this is where the hidden curriculum comes in because learning in this manner it entails subtext about why certain styles of communication are deemed appropriate to certain patients and not others um and by extension arguably what it means to be a good or a bad patient because you see how the doctor responds to them and it also reveals but without commenting on it each doctor's own position in in the social world that is the clinic and and the values that they hold um and and one consequence of this absence of this being part of the hidden curriculum is the conclusion by students that particular issues are not sufficiently important then to warrant direct attention or are somehow unrelated to the practice and experience of health and medicine and many of these students choose to think about these things in their own time and to read and they're interested and they are critically minded but that all comes from individuals there's no structure there it's not part of 
an overt curriculum, which tells us a lot, I think. That's really, really interesting. Um, so, you know, you also show so carefully how the MBBS students at AIMS imagine their future selves through their time in the Institute. So can you walk us through the kinds of dilemmas and decisions students make about their future after graduating from AIMS? Sure, yes. Yeah. So throughout the book, I, I build on some work by um, Nicholas Long and Henrietta Moore about achievement as a, as a social event. So I think of this achievement of getting into AIMS as this social event that involves different people. Um, and often, you know, the student herself is, is embedded in this network of different people and institutions who have all contributed to this event of the admission to AIMS. Mm-hmm. Um, and the consequences of that event affect how the individual, how she thinks about herself, how she relates to people around her, and also what she can what she feels she can expect of herself and of her future. Um, and in this, in this chapter, um, it's one of the longer, the longer chapters because there's a lot to say, um, but two, mm. of the, two of the key points that I, that I cover in it, one is this conventional wisdom of the necessity of super-specialising in order to be a mm. successful doctor and in order to do justice to one's status as an Amesonian. Um, And students, again, students, you know, call into question, they're perfectly capable of criticising this narrative at the same time as saying it's inevitable. Um, Mm -hmm. And they support this with a narrative of of patient demand for specialised treatment um, because what they see both in their own social milieu that they have come from And it's worth saying that, yes, there is diversity amongst the student population, but it is also very much middle class um, and truly, you know, the most marginalised aspiring doctor is going to find it very difficult to get into AIMS by virtue of not having had an English medium education, not being able to afford coaching, all those different things. So we are talking about a generally middle class student body albeit with great diversity there's a spectrum of of middle classness so to speak Um, Mm -hmm. but their experience of medicine of course is informed by where they come from um, and often what they've always seen is people going straight to specialists and now they're being trained at an institution which although it compensates for the lack of primary and secondary care by providing that it is a tertiary institution and so they see people coming straight to specialists. So there's no challenge to that perception. And that feeds this sense that the only way to survive is to become a super specialist, as well as the more expected, you know, ambitions around, I want to earn more money and I want to, you know, go further in my profession. Um, slightly less less surprising findings in a way. Um and the second point that I that I highlight in that chapter is around the idea of practicing beyond the city, um, mm-hmm. and I have a section about absence and waste and difficulty. Um, and of course, again, you have the the more expected kind of findings, which is that the inadequate healthcare infrastructure beyond the city is seen as an impediment to practicing in a rural location um 
what I found more interesting, though, is was this a more complex understanding about rural, what constitutes rural medicine and rural illness and rural need that was embedded in this frustration about absent technology. Um, there was a feeling that this is really not the sort of medicine that an Amesonian is meant to practice because it is insufficiently complicated. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not just the lack of an x-ray machine that discourages students or the lack of decent housing. It's right. this perception of rural illnesses that the absent infrastructure reinforces and this idea that mm. a lack of there is somehow that there are insufficiently complex conditions in rural areas to do justice to the superiority of an Amesonian's training and yet here in there's there's a paradox and a power here that I think gets really to the heart of the Ames brand <clears throat> in that I write in the book that there are these complex unfolding consequences of achievement and there are value there are ideas associated about value and legitimacy of different types of medical practice and the paradox becomes apparent when we place this perception of the insufficient challenge of rural healthcare alongside the testimony of students who consider themselves unequipped to practice any kind of medicine after the MBBS primarily because mm-hmm. they all spend the intern year, where they're supposed to be gaining clinical experience, they all spend it studying for the postgraduate entrance exams. So these two things coexist. On the one hand, I'm not ready to practice any kind of medicine. And on the other hand, my training is far too good for me to be a doctor in a rural context, which I found really, really interesting. Um, And finally, on the, yes, on the point about Considering futures, um, I have two stories in the book um, under the heading of Precluded Futures, and they are two stories of two upper caste young women who whose plans to work in India. They both got excited by the community medicine module and by public health. One of them wants to go into public health, one of them wants to go into the civil services um, and try and inform policy change and curricular reform. The other one wanted to go into public health and inform grassroots healthcare that way. And both of these young women, their plans were precluded by the expectations of family. The young woman who wanted to do an MPH was told by, came from a, she comes from five generations of doctors and, um, And she was told by her mother that anyone she had ever met with an MPH was an idiot. And the other young woman who wanted to stay and go into the civil services was in the marriage, on the marriage market, um, and was likely to be married into a family that may have prevented her from working outside the home at all. And so by the time I left Delhi, they were both planning to go to the US for postgraduate training. And I include their stories because, yes, of course, being able to go to the US for postgraduate training speaks to their privilege, and not everyone has that option, but also to counter easy assumptions that 
anyone who graduates from Ames and goes to the US is just leaving to make money or to have some kind of better life. I wanted to show that, no, there are examples of people who leave in pursuit of a kind of freedom um, and, and India loses out and they don't just, you know, the country doesn't just lose doctors mm-hmm. in the cities. They lose these young people who have bigger ideas about the kind of change and transformation they would like to enact um, and then don't have the opportunity to do so, which is not to say they may not come back and make change, but later than they planned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so one of the key arguments you make in this book is that while AIMS fulfills an invaluable public function by providing high quality treatment to poor patients, its approach to medical education renders it complicit in the reproduction of inequalities that define society and the healthcare landscape in which it operates. Um, so I, on that note, you know, I kind of love the way you ended the book with a chapter on the potential of medical education in India and the way forward, so to speak. Um, you write, if excellence in medicine is at its heart a gatekeeping tool used to protect the interests of the elite, then it seems foolhardy to anticipate redefinition in response to inequality. So I realize it's a lot to sum up, but what are the ways uh, in which medical education in India can be leveraged to making healthcare more inclusive and equitable? So one of the interesting things about this book took longer to appear in the world than I anticipated, and I, perhaps that's often the way. But one of the but one of the consequences of that happens to have been that it has been published in this moment of pandemic. And that's just a strange coincidence. Um, but what it what it meant was that I did have the chance to integrate this moment in a way in into the end of the book um, and into what is a sort of conclusion and as you say a sort of kind of provocation, whatever we want to call it. Um, yeah, so I, I, I wrote this this section last summer. Um, when we were in the thick of it, we, we still appear to be in the right. thick of it. Um, and for India, of course, this is a a moment of, of great reckoning with not just a legacy of neglect of public health and public health care, but also of of what what a reckoning with what public health means. And one of the things I've always wanted to write and I've never got round to um, is about, you know, what is what does public health mean if you don't really have a public? And that, mm-hmm. I think, is something that is being confronted at the moment. Um, mm. But back to this, the question is, what, what does this moment ask for from medical education, um, generally mm. speaking, but also from an institution, um, in this case, AIMS, that is mandated to set national standards? Um, mm-hmm. And... In this, at the end of the book, I suggest that what it demands, not least, is is an interrogation of prevailing conceptions of excellence and the role of the doctor in society and how that is imparted to students through both implicit suggestion and explicit example. And of course, a single institution cannot be expected to change the medical culture of an entire country. Um, and that's not what I intend to suggest, but it is worth remembering that AIMS is actually mandated to pretty much do just that. Um, 
And while it may not be able to change everything, what it can do is to use its position to show the way. Um, and at present, what we see at Ames is is the way in which the, the production and the reaffirmation of narrow norms and conceptions of excellence really stifles the potential of of the MBBS program and and its students. Mm-hmm. And with it, the, the transformative impact that some of these people could eventually have on Indian health and medicine. And some will have this impact regardless, um, we, we hope. Um, but I, I suggest that a, a re-envisaging of, of the purpose of undergraduate education at Ames really has the potential to make graduating from this most prestigious medical college more meaningful um, and could in the process, make for an institution as exceptional in practice as it is in the imagination. And and one of the ways in which I I suggest that this could could happen is by integrating social science and the humanities into the curriculum, which is actually provided for in the AIMS Act. In the Act of Parliament Mm. that founded the institution, there is an article that provides for the inclusion of the humanities, and it has never happened um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it just shows that these ideas were there. They were in the minds of the founders and the people who inspired this institution. Um, and the suggestion is, and here I, I follow Arthur Kleinman and a lot of other people who've argued for the integration of you know more humanities and social sciences in medical education. The idea is to create space for interrogating social inequalities rather than naturalizing them. And for students to reflect on the role of the doctor in society. It's it's not about tasking young doctors with finding a remedy or with fixing things. It's it's about opening spaces for new and, and different ways of paying attention to themselves and also to the to the world around them. Um and I, I really hope that, you know, my hope with this book, while I've been spending such a long time writing it the idea in my mind has always been that really I've written it for medical students um Mm -hmm. if if there is any audience that I could choose you know to read it it would be young medical students and ideally medical students in in South Asia um and other parts of the world where the social science and humanities aren't as integrated into the curricula yet um and I, I hope in a way that the existence of the book is an example, acts as an example of how looking at these things through a social science lens can contribute to thinking about medicine as a, a more humanist endeavour. And I think as, you know, as researchers as well, I think we, we have a responsibility to pay more attention to the formation of medical power and authority and its influence on and within health systems. There's a lot of attention these days to health policy and systems research, and that's great. Mm -hmm. But I am struck by the need still to go further and further upstream and say, where is the source of this power? Where is this coming from? Let's let's look at that. Um, And I hope that, you know, this is... A drop in the ocean, but a, a small contribution in that direction. No, I think it definitely is. Um, and again, thanks for writing this book. It, it was really eye-opening for me uh, as I was reading it. Uh, someone tangentially interested 
in 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 these things about public health but uh, yeah I, i learned a lot from it uh, and you know thanks a lot for taking time out to chat with me today but before we end this call i would love to know what are you working on now and what can we expect to read from you in the near future yeah well thanks for having me sneha i really really enjoyed it um it's a it's a good question as i said i'm not i'm a kind of in between worlds at the moment um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i work with research more than i actually produce it at present um but most recently i've been working on not related to to india at least not yet um some work around mm-hmm. the impact of the pandemic on women with chronic illness um and particularly condition women with conditions who have fallen through the gaps of policy provision um and in terms of this work we'll have to see what the future brings i would love to do some follow up work i would love to get back in touch with the students you know in a few years time and see where did they go what did they do um and how does that yeah. add to or counter or you know um the arguments the arguments in the book um but mm-hmm. yes what watch this space i guess is, right. is what i'll say <laughs> at this point <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, thanks a lot Anna again for taking time out and um yeah, good luck with uh, with the circulation of the book. I'm sure it's going to be really well received and congratulations again on writing it. Thanks so much Neha.